0: Hi, folks we are so glad that you're listening to our body politic if you have time please consider leaving us a review on apple podcast it helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback we'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able you can find out more at our slash donate we are here for you with you and because of you thank you This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week on the show, we're talking about joy. When we started Our Body Politic, we wanted to make space for our full selves, our challenges, our celebrations. So we're taking stock and sharing with you some of our favorite past conversations with creators, community builders, and change makers. First, as a lifelong lover of books and also someone who's written half a dozen of them myself, reading has brought me a lot of joy, and I wanted to bring you two people publishing writers of color. Elizabeth Mendez Berry is vice president and executive editor at One World, part of Penguin Random House and co-founder of Critical Minded, a grant-making and learning initiative that supports cultural critics of color in the U.S. We've also got Lisa Lucas, Senior Vice President and Publisher at Pantheon and Shockin' Books. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, glad to be here. And we've also got Lisa Lucas returning to the show. Hey, Lisa. Hey,
1: it's great to be back.
0: So let me start with you, Elizabeth. You know, women of color are over-consumers of books compared to many other demographics. And One World, your house that you're at, and helping to champion and lead and edit some of the most powerful intellectuals in America is publishing people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, who are pretty much directly under attack, not even indirectly, you know, in a general sense, but very directly being banned. What, What do you make of this era and how it's perceiving
2: the work of your authors? You know, the way I think about this stuff is that the public square is so contested, so important. And when who holds that square and who dominates that square and who has the power to articulate their ideas, their vision, their analysis, when that shifts, there's a group of people who get very angry and Mm -hmm. very scared. And that combination is, of course, combustible and toxic. So the banning of books is not new, but... The combination of banning of books, you know, at the most local level, at the library, at the school, you know, the school library in in these spaces has now trickled up to legislation to where 1619 in particular has been banned in multiple states. I think it means that we're strong. I think it means that they're scared. I think it means that the notion of a new narrative about this country that destabilizes its longstanding belief in its own innocence is so devastating to people for whom the only way that this country can exist is innocent. I believe that what we're doing at One World is we believe that when the myth of American innocence ends, that's when a much more interesting country emerges, a country that is willing to dwell in its contradictions and willing to actually grow.
0: We had a series of conversations about what it's like to critique Black art and hold Black artists accountable for their actions. You know, it was regarding Dave Chappelle specifically, but I think it's not just about Black art. It's about, in general, when someone is, quote, your people, whatever your people are, how do you assess them in ways that are culturally contextual. So Karen Atia, who's a Washington Post columnist and a contributor here, said that she wanted better for us. She said, quote, because we're in a white-dominated, male-dominated society, there's this instinct to want to promote and protect Black expression at all costs. Lisa, how do you make sense of these conversations about respectability, politics, inclusion, and where we are today?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things is we're both babies of Vibe and the Source, where I also worked back in the day. And I, I grew up, my mom worked in Black media. She worked at a place called Uniworld, which is a Black ad agency. I think that when you have the luck to grow up in spaces that are, you know, by us and for us, right, You, you ultimately have a better sense of the nuance that is required right you're able to have those conversations about okay so we're women coming up in hip hop journalism actually i don't know if i love the way that you know i'm being represented or that there's not a conversation about representation so you start to lose the nuance in these conversations you know where there is space to talk about the black vernacular to talk about misogyny in hip hop to talk about colorism to talk about Black capitalism and whether or not it's good or bad. These are things that because you are at such an uh, an infancy of thinking about the breadth of BIPOC publishing, that you're not able to sort of, you don't have the main text that talks about X, Y, and Z problem in Black America, let alone the tertiary issues that are of the utmost importance to everybody living inside of our skin and bodies. So I think that that's the job too, to sort of not just champion a work by a person of color, but to also say that I'm laying the groundwork both structurally in terms of bringing on editors and marketers and all of the people who do the work, but also to integrate not just Black stories, but a wide variety of Black stories, a wide variety of female stories.
0: So Elizabeth, you know, you, you wrote an article for Vibe 15 years ago, Love Hurts, that sort of touches on some of these questions. How do you, like, maybe give us small example of how you've made sense of this.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I love Hertz is a great example. I think, you know, fundamentally that when we pretend that things are okay, when they're not okay with the people we love, we're preventing ourselves and each other from growing. The role of the critic, this is one of the things I think so much about because I've learned since we founded Critical Minded several years ago that a lot of people don't actually really know what criticism is.
0: And can you just explain what Critical Minded is, which is incredible. I was introduced to some of the, the cultural critics of color that you brought together at Sundance a couple years ago. Explain what that is before continuing.
2: Absolutely. So Critical Minded is an initiative that I co-founded. And basically what we were trying to do is figure out a way of supporting critics of color because— all of the different supports that had existed that had enabled some people like me to develop over the years, like working for Alternative Weeklies or like Lisa working for Vibe Magazine, and actually kind of, you know, all of these spaces where we were able to see excellence and understand excellence as not uh, something that was you know, exclusively the domain of white institutions, that was no longer available. And so the question was, what what does what does that mean, not just for critics, but for art and culture and democracy more broadly? And I think that's a little bit what I believe criticism is so valuable for. And I think at the end of the day, when you have a frank and honest conversation about whatever it is, including culture, that means that you care about someone or something enough to believe that they deserve to hear the truth.
0: Yeah. Thinking of influential books, I, I think of Greg Tate's Flyboy and the Buttermilk. And I really cried for him. I just realized that among other things for me, Elizabeth, he represented the positive male gaze that just accepted me for who I was at every stage of my life and didn't want me to be more than I am or, or want me to be less than I am. And I just felt very seen by him in a way that really breaks me up to this moment. Can you tell folks who he was
2: a little bit more? I was reflecting on this. I was thinking about, you know, reading him and the importance and power of reading him as a critic who had been, you know, who made such an important role at The Village Voice, which when I think about, cultural criticism it was such an important incubator and, and laboratory for so many people and he was really the epitome of that you know and then you have the person I called myself a tater tot you know who called ourselves tater tots because he gave us a way of understanding what criticism could be in the world and how we could be as critics, uniquely, specifically, and vivaciously ourselves, right? And, and I just, I'm a little bit resentful. Like when I think about where the fact that he, you know, his last books were coming out on a university press. I love the university press. I'm, um, appreciate the university press for doing it. And I'm also enraged that he was not one of the beneficiaries of. This wave that we have now of younger people who are extraordinarily talented and deserve the visibility and support that they get. You know, I wish he had gotten it too.
1: Yeah. The world was built by the Tates. Right. And, you know, the cultural world I inhabit.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting. I think back to Stanley Crouch, who's writing for the Village Voice at the same time. And he's saying hip hop is terrible. And, <laughs> you know, jazz is changing in ways that is offensive. And, you know, brilliant man. You know, I disagree with 95 percent of all the things that he ever said, but I found his mind to be quite rigorous. Now, unfortunately, we were willing because it criticized us because it criticized some of the parts of Blackness that were complicated for white America, he found a home at major publishers. But the tapes that celebrated hip hop, that, that said to us, you know, this is a new world order and this is a new culture and that it is deep and intelligent and rigorous and changing lives and the world. And it is not lesser in any way. And it's beautiful. It's just difficult to see that they were a lost generation in terms of wider publication and celebration.
0: Yeah. So last question, very short. Name a book coming out on your imprints in 2022. One book that you want us to read, Elizabeth first and then Lisa.
2: Oh my goodness. I'm going to say Woman of Light by Kelly Fajardo Einstein. It's historical fiction, but it's vibrant. It's one world does historical fiction, which means that it's feels present and prescient. And it's about Indigenous-identified Latinx people in Colorado in the 19th century. And it's just a phenomenal yarn. I can't wait. Lisa? I'm really
1: excited about Margot Jefferson's Constructing a Nervous System, which is a memoir and has all of her traditional sort of unexpected, you know, critical lens on the art that made her the complications of an ornery mind.
0: Elizabeth and Lisa, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank Thank you so
2: much.
1: Pleasure always.
0: That was Lisa Lucas, Senior Vice President and Publisher at Pantheon and and Books, and Elizabeth Mendez-Berry, VP and Executive Editor at One World. Coming up next, two sisters who created an online space for
3: Afghans to find health information and community. We just want to nurture a safe environment for people to explore and express themselves and live their best and healthiest lives.
0: And Black people are centering health and joy by reconnecting with the outdoors. I
4: noticed that as I pursued more outdoor activities and in groups of people, I didn't find people who looked like me. I was often the only
0: one. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. This week, we are focusing on joy with some of our favorite interviews about taking care of each other and ourselves. Sometimes the things that bring us joy are focused on our own enjoyment, taking time to do arts and crafts. Now, for me, I love doing collages. It's low stress and it's fun. Other aspects of joy are the joy of service. So early in the pandemic, I brought fresh fruits and vegetables from farm stands in upstate New York, To my neighbors in Brooklyn, it was a time when the supply of vegetables was disrupted in the pandemic, and that was a service that brought me joy. One of my neighbors is a vegan, so the lack of vegetables really hit him hard, and he's a black man in his 50s and a personal trainer. And the reason that he's both a vegan and a trainer is because he lost his brother too young to a stroke, So his life's work is a service to the health of his community, and he takes great joy from it. I call him the mayor of our block. Helping others be healthier is definitely a form of service dearly needed in our times. My next guests are sisters Niloufar Kehani and Nazanin Kandahari. As students, they teamed up and founded the Afghan Clinic. It's an online space for Afghans to get health education materials, attend webinars, and get help navigating their health in the U.S. Niloufar, welcome. Thank you for having us. And Nazanin, welcome.
5: It's a pleasure to be here, Farai. Before
0: I go to Niloufar, can you tell me just briefly about your family's journey to the U.S.?
5: Sure. Uh, so both of my parents are from Afghanistan, the city of Herat, Um, and they actually both separately sought refuge in Iran, which is just next door, and got married there, which is where I was born, as well as my two older brothers. But like many Afghans, they weren't treated well there. They weren't allowed to go to school. They weren't allowed to work or own property. I wasn't even given a birth certificate because I was Afghan, and so we came to the United States when I was about four years old and applied for asylum here. And that journey took a little, little bit of a while. But here we are.
0: Yeah. And here we are with Nilufar, who is your talented sister, both of you working in health. Were you born here in the U.S.?
3: I was. I was born, yeah, shortly after they immigrated here in 2001. I was the first citizen of the family. And I remember like when we were all applying for citizenship, they would always comment that I was the lucky one for not having to wait 15 years to kind of get some recognition of my American identity.
0: And how did you get interested, Nilafar in health? Was it because of your older sister or just in general?
3: My older sister had a lot to do with it. Besides that, since I was young, I kind of knew... I had interest in the health fields and it was largely informed by the experiences I had as my parents health advocate. I have distinct memories of when my dad was diagnosed with diabetes and having to go home and research what that means. So I could explain it to him and researching the different medications so we could come up with the questions we want to ask his physician. And it was experiences like that as a kid that I had these epiphanies where I was like, other people don't have to do this and don't have to rely on their children to make these health care decisions. And it is the job of the healthcare practitioners to educate us and like have us involved in every step. We were talking about the concept of informed consent for someone
5: to truly know the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, why they're saying yes to something or no to something. So if my dad automatically by default said no to the diabetes medications, it's someone's job to see why, why is he saying no? Is he saying no because he truly knows the risks, benefits and alternatives and what comes with that, which is why we focus a lot of Afghan clinic work on health education. It's for people to feel empowered to make the decisions that are best for them.
0: So Nazanin, tell us about the concept of Sofre, which you mentioned on the website.
5: So growing up, my mom would take me to these gatherings that were created by women for women. It was a very sacred space and they were called Sofres. Sofre and Nazar is what you say. And these gatherings were really quite a sacred space especially, and I think, in a culture that is otherwise misogynistic in many ways and can be oppressive to women especially. Women gather, they eat ceremonial foods, they pray. At every sofra other women pray. And when their prayer comes true, then they have to host the next one. And so there's an aspect of sustainability already built into it. And this was also all inspired because my mom was praying for me to get into my dream medical school and so when I did, she had to host a sofra and I like all of this came from that. Um, and so I was thinking there's so many health benefits to spirituality and to promoting that, which happens at sofra gatherings. There's so many health benefits to promoting social networking and social support. How great would it be if we had sofras where the newly arrived refugees and those who have been here for a while can converse and make friends and teach each other the ropes of living in the United States and like maybe at every session, I would be there with another Dari speaking health professional and we could teach about a health topic in a forum that already has so many beautiful strengths to it. And that's what I meant about uplifting the strengths of these marginalized patient populations. Why do we have to focus on their deficits of them being, you know, not educated or, or whatever other deficits the, the healthcare institution tries to focus on as the reason for their worse health outcomes? And so I got funding through a few different fellowships to go ahead and create this beautiful public health intervention that I had dreamt up with my mom and sister. Uh, and then COVID happened. So we weren't able to host any sofras yet, but it is our goal and plan to. And also just to explain, in Dari, salamati means health. So the name was Sofra salamati. And Nilafar,
0: I think a lot of what your sister was talking about is... There's stuff that's very specific to Afghan culture, but it's also about, I I was talking to a friend of mine who's another storyteller in a different form about how the loss of the original culture is like an existential storyline for people all over the world. We have always moved, migrated, changed languages, sometimes over tens of thousands of years, sometimes over one generation. And It seems to me that part of what you're doing is taking health and reconnecting the older and the newer narratives. What does that feel like?
3: I think in all of us, a big kind of value is cultural humility and allowing people to educate us about who they are. We can't make any assumptions of what their background is or what they want their lives in America to be like. One big kind of factor in Afghan clinic is also there is no definition of what is right or what is wrong here and what good health or bad health is. And yeah. We just want to nurture a safe environment for people to explore and express themselves and live their best and healthiest lives. And Nuzini, do you want to add anything? Yeah. I myself identify, like I said, as an Afghan refugee
5: woman, as an Afghan American. There is no universal way of being Afghan. And that's why I think the concept of cultural humility is so beautiful and i learned that acutely because i grew up at this intersection of having to define myself between two clear cultures the american and the afghan and i knew pretty early on that there's diverse ways of being and believing in things so i think healthcare practitioners must carry themselves with cultural humility in order to care for afghan patients properly
0: so how do you take care of yourself I'm going to ask both of you that. But Nazanin, how do you take care of yourself so that you can do this work for other people?
5: First, I will say this project has truly been a labor of love. It's the first time I brought my Afghan and American worlds together. And so I'd say this work truly has been nurturing my heart. And it feels really good to put to use the privileges and the skills that I've worked really hard to attain as a medical student, as a public health professional, and to use that to address the challenges, the very challenges that I experienced as an Afghan refugee. And Nilofar,
0: what sustains you and fills your well so you can do this work? And what do you think you've gotten from it?
3: The one thing really keeping me going in all of this is that I am gaining the skills and the knowledge to really be able to do the work that I want to do in the future. And so I've always been reminding myself, like, I'm here to learn and better myself so I can be a better public health practitioner and researcher one day.
0: Nazanin, and Nilofar, thank you both so much for joining us.
5: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us.
0: That was Niloufar Kehani and Nazanin Kandahari, founders of the Afghan Clinic. You can support their work by going to afghanclinic.com. We're bringing back some of our favorite conversations about giving and receiving joy. My next guest finds joy by spending time in the great outdoors and encouraging others to do the same. Rue Map is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro, a nonprofit based in Oakland and D.C. that gets people of color across the nation out in nature. She launched it as a blog over 10 years ago, and now members of Outdoor Afro have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro as well as taken many, many local hikes. Here's a bit of a conversation that MAP had with Oprah Winfrey during Winfrey's 2020 Vision Tour. They gathered with others in a stand of redwoods that were growing back years after the area had been clear-cut. MAP speaks first. Think about what's been clear-cut in your life and where you
4: need regeneration.
6: I take my stillness and my peace Mm. from the trees. And whenever anything is off or off balance in my life, I literally just go out under the oaks, which I call the apostles, and I find peace and, and sanity there. So this is my church. And this
0: is our conversation with Rue Mapp. Welcome, Rue. So glad to be here, Farai. Thank you so much for having me. You know, a lot of people have used the pandemic as a chance to enjoy the outdoors, even if they didn't really do it before. I was really excited to see, for example, a lot of teenagers, you know, like middle school and high school age kids walking in groups through the woods because it was the place where they could interact relatively safely. What do you think the whole pandemic has done for the outdoors and our connection and for Outdoor Afro and and its outreach.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really great framing. And as you were talking about the teenagers, I just thought about what was going on in my neighborhood. And it was the same thing. It was like kids on bicycles, on roller skates, adults on roller skates. It was almost like it was 1982 again, you know, and it helped me to understand just how far we had gotten away from our everyday connection to the outdoors We were literally trying to sell nature for a while. But the pandemic was actually this beautiful moment that intersected perfectly with all the work that we've been doing over the years, where we actually felt ready to welcome people and guide people to their nature. Public areas were available in ways that restaurants weren't, places of worship weren't, shopping wasn't. And I looked out one morning during all this shutting down and saw my pit bull scratching on her back and I saw a blue scrub jay in the yard and I realized that nature never closes.
0: I have to say that I have really benefited from outdoor Afro. I grew up in a culture of loving nature, you know, um, My grandmother helped desegregate the Girl Scouts in Maryland. I went to Girl Scout camp, to Girl Scouts and to summer stay away Girl Scout camp, and also did family camping. Love it. So I was was already a fan, but I didn't always have a community, especially living in New York City, which I did for most of my adult life. When did you found Outdoor Afro? Why did you found Outdoor Afro? And what is it now for you? Well, you know,
4: just like you, I was a Girl Scout and I had a nature-loving family, mom and dad from the South, Texas, Louisiana, and they came during the Great Migration that brought many of our folks to cities like Oakland and Los Angeles and New York and and beyond. And, you know, they brought with them this love of nature and connection to nature. And they were so committed to it that they had a house uh, set up about 100 miles north of Oakland, beyond the Napa Valley, and adjacent to Clear Lake, um, which was a destination for working-class folks to go up and fish and hunt, and so we had this ranch that my dad crafted. We had people come over from all over our community, from church, from mm-hmm. from the hood. I mean, relatives, you know, that span the whole you know spectrum of Black community were invited, and my dad had this wonderful saying, and it was. If you came and you had a good time, he would say, you know, you have a standing invitation. And so I grew up with the steadiness of hospitality and this abundance of nature and outdoor recreation. But I noticed that as I pursued more outdoor activities and in groups of people, I didn't find people who looked like me, I was often the only one in those groups, especially mm. when I went out beyond the city. And it was really this moment where a mentor asked me the question I think everybody should ask or answer at some point in their lives. You know, by this time, I'm divorced with three children. And, you know, it's, it's, it's looking kind of, you know, uncertain for me. Mm. And she's like, hey, you know, if time and money were not an issue, what would you be doing And I literally opened my mouth and my life fell out. I said, oh, I'd probably start a website to reconnect Black people to the outdoors. And literally two weeks later, I whimsically started a blog from my kitchen table called Outdoor Afro.
0: Like what year plus or minus, remind me? 2009. And it was in that first wave of social
4: media that we were able to build audience who then asked me, hey, this is great that you're sharing a new narrative and that you're helping to shift the visual representation of who gets outdoors. But we wanna find ways to get outside with other people who look like us. And that's when the Outdoor Afro Leadership Team was born. And I'm proud to say that that team started off as about 12 people. And then in this last year, we have a class of over a hundred men and women who represent 33 cities across the United States and their participation network is over 50,000 people. And they are out getting it. People are hiking, biking, camping, yeah, nature journaling. I mean, getting their nature swagger back.
0: I have to give props to Katina, who is one of the New York leaders, and I've been on some great hikes with her. And- she is amazing. I've gone to meet up to sign up for the listings of what's what. I'm sure it's different in different cities, but I just feel differently in my body. I feel alive, powerful, less worried about my deficits than I am about my assets. You know, I enjoy hiking, kayaking. For me, being outdoors is, is so much about just feeling present yes at a time where there's no like cell phone pings there's no this there's no that and do you still feel that sense of of freedom when you after all these years of doing this as part of your work
4: when it comes to me you know i recognize that i need nature's medicine too and it's important for me to not only practice what i preach but, to really locate myself in the experience that I'm asking people to take part in who join Outdoor Afro, you know, it's so much about hospitality and welcoming. And it's important that I also share back what these experiences mean for me with my staff and also with our community. so i I, I do quite a bit of posting about, you know, my own journey. And you can find that on Rue Map on Instagram, where I go into a little bit more detail about the things that I'm facing that just helps me to support our leaders and also have empathy for the ways that people say yes to nature and yes to outdoor afro.
0: And that's Map with Two Ps, Roo, Rue R U E, Map with Two Ps. Thank you so much, Rue. Thank you so much for having me, Farai. That was Rue Map, CEO of Outdoor Afro. Find your local group at OutdoorAfro.com. Coming up next, journalists Jenny Monet and Mitra Kalita on what it means to them to be a woman of color. I'm Farai Chidea, back with you shortly. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea, and this week we are taking time for joy. Now, me, I find joy by connecting with other women of color in journalism. We help capture, shape, and in many ways, lead the conversations about our nation's democracy and despite some of the problems in our industry, we often have a lot of fun doing our work. So to continue on our joy train, here's one of our favorite episodes of Sipping the Political Tea with S. Mitra Kalita, co-founder and publisher of Epicenter NYC and CEO of URL Media, plus Jenny Monet, media critic and editor-in-chief of the weekly newsletter, Indigenously. When I founded Our Body Politic, I started describing women of color as a super demographic. Um, we are of many races, backgrounds, religions, national origins, and Do we have a lot in common or not so much? Are we starting to find ourselves as a collective voice or are we really living very different lives? So, you know, here's a clip from Vox of Black feminist and activist Loretta Ross talking about the history of how the term women of color was used when an alliance was first forming between different women's groups at the 1977 National Women's Conference in Houston. It was in those negotiations in Houston the term women of color was created, okay? And they didn't see it as a biological designation. You're born Asian, you're born black, you're born African American, whatever. It is a solidarity definition, a commitment to work in collaboration with other oppressed women of color who have been minoritized. Now, Mitra, you've written about this topic. So that was, you know, 45 years ago. What comes to mind when you hear it defined here as a political alliance?
6: I mean, I love the idea of identity being a destination versus a construct that you're kind of born into. So I think that the idea that you owe other women of color something by describing yourself as a woman of color, though, is really powerful. So I'm going to say I agree with the construct. What I worry is that we haven't made a whole lot of progress in the decades since that was almost offered to us as a way of being.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, for me it's like I definitely define myself very much as a black woman, but my you know, my blackness was also informed by having an African father from a specific tribe and region of of Africa, the Shona people of Southern Africa, and a Black American mother with, you know, quite a lot of information we know about the history of my family on that side. So that's also complex. But Jenny, obviously, indigenous women in the U.S. have a very different history than other women. Like, you are the OGs. You know, you were here before there was a United States. Does that affect how the women of color identity or umbrella does or doesn't stick?
7: I don't know, because for so long, I don't think people even understood who we were. (laughs) Mm. I remember growing up and people thinking, well, you're just like me, you're white, you're here, but you're not white and you're not black and you're not hispanic. What are you? And they don't ask. Or if you live near tribal communities, they just you know think that you are some stereotype of a native american. And um I remember just growing up uh, very very st- firmly couched in my own identity as a Laguna Pueblo woman, where we are distinctly of our own cultures. And I think that that has been what's carried me in so many situations. Um, the, The community that that breeds, it's incredibly matriarchal, which means that the womanhood behind how we function even in our own communities is really strong. And so I'm grateful for all of my aunties and grandmothers and all the other women. I just think that it's just uh, been my medicine, what has carried me.
0: Yeah. I mean, Mitra, one of the things I think about a lot is the ways in which class, for example, is as much of a sorting hat as race. I think most people who are working income or low income,
6: they're not worried about stuff like this. I mean, is this even relevant? It's very relevant because when we use a term like women of color, it can erase what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. I do think that the class distinctions matter both in terms of how we're capturing communities. And Mm -hmm. of course, the data and demographics is so important to capture, but you also don't want to kind of blanket create narratives without diving into field reporting and really capturing the nuance of it. I think the other piece that feels important from a class distinction is being aware of what we're bringing to our identities and the blind spots that inevitably arise. I see this with a lot of Indian American women who Mm -hmm. have clung to the narrative of being women of color, but haven't necessarily understood what it means to center Black voices. Mm -hmm. And this year, what I'm really heartened by and this is not just because Jenny's joining us today, but you know, increasingly I'm hearing the centering of Black and Indigenous voices in a way that I've never heard before in my life. So if you have Asian women or Indian American women who are clinging to this construct of being women of color, but they're not centering those, to your point, who really paved their path, then they're benefiting from a certain identity, but they're really not practicing what that identity, you know, to sort of end where we began, right, which is this is something that requires you to give back, right? That requires yeah. you to think about something greater than yourself.
0: Yeah, and that that can be very complicated and and I use the term unpaid civic labor to refer to all the work that women of color disproportionately do to just keep democracy going and to be essential workers and so on and so on. And and this brings me to some of the work you've been doing, Jenny, to bring more focus to the impact of native women on life in the U.S. and life around the world. And in your newsletter, Indigenously, you talk a bit about Alberta Shank and Ada Blackjack. I'd love to hear a bit more about who they are.
7: Oh, well, they're incredible pockets of information for, or and inspiration, both information and inspiration. But I deliberately inserted them into the narrative of how some of our most remote indigenous communities are often portrayed from folks who parachute in and exploit what are considered some of the most rich areas and environments, Alaska. You know, they're rich in subsistence economies, fishing and hunting. Ada Blackjack is a woman who out-survived four white expeditioners in their quest to colonize Wrangell Island, which is in the middle of the Bering Sea. It's just above the Bering Strait. So she goes up there with these white guys. She Mm -hmm. gets stranded, outlives all of them. And I love the fact that she just kind of knew the original instructions of how to survive in an environment like that for two years. And I don't think people know that when they come up here and they report on missing and murdered indigenous women, or they come up here and they look at, you know, child welfare and children getting taken away, that these women come from a legacy of strength and intelligence and tenacity that I think if we projected that a little bit more, they might think twice before they come in here and just want to get their headlines for, for awards and prizes that make it into newspapers.
0: Yeah. Your work really covers both the promise and the peril of life-facing Indigenous women and how Indigenous women are leading and trailblazing with so much nuance and complexity. And and I have to say, you know, and, and I've said it on the show before, I learned nothing about Indigenous people, not only in K-12, through 12, but even in college. And your newsletter is one of the ways that I'm informing myself because it's up to me to learn. And I think a lot of times... You know, people are like, well, if, you know, they want me to know something, I guess they'd tell me. And it's like, yes, there are people telling. So in any <laughs> case, I want to keep going with talk about representation in the media and turn to you, Mitra. In addition to the epicenter, you also have URL Media, which you co-founded with a Black female journalist. How do your different backgrounds within this broad umbrella and possibly very flawed umbrella of women of color affect what you're doing and how you're doing it?
6: So I think having seen a lot of headlines of founders of companies being at odds with each other. You know, more than a year into founding an organization with another woman of color, I just emerge with such gratitude that we really see eye to eye on the big things. And one big thing is what does it mean to be Black-centered when you're not Black, Hmm. right? Mm. And that's a conversation we had, early. I mean, before we literally incorporated. And there was two ways of having that conversation. One was for me to kind of say what I thought I was doing, but the other was to say Sarah, my co-founder is Sarah Lomax-Reese, who's the president of URL Media, but also runs uh, WURD, a Black radio station in Philadelphia. And I said, you know, Sarah, what does this Mean both from a business perspective, from how we run things, and I hope it's okay to tell you this. You know, we're we're upfront about it. You know, we're co-founders, but she owns fifty one percent of the company, mm. and that was important to both of us. So, really, when we talk about power, you know, wealth and money is a really big part of that conversation. Yeah, and we often, with a lot of journalism. I don't want to say we conflate mission with power, but we kind of put the money aside. And when you're launching a company with someone, the money conversation has to come first. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. And the
0: 51% is not a small deal. It It is really a vote of confidence in a certain um, financial and equity structure that is putting the ball in the hand of your co-founder in in this one specific way of majority that's right. ownership. That's, that's pretty amazing. Jenny, I want to check in on the broader media universe. There have been some advances for women of color in news leadership roles. Harper's Bazaar hired its first Black editor-in-chief, Samira Nasser, and ABC News appointed their first Black woman as president of the network. So um, do you see that as... In any way, game changing or too soon to say?
7: Oh, it's always game changing when you bring women in leadership positions. And then when it starts to, um, you know, be less white, I mean, it's exciting. And I don't think that we have any gauge to, to that really, um, here in this country anyway. And so I think that it'll be, these are interesting times. I do always carry concern as a Native woman about, how long it's going to take for them to understand that decolonizing doesn't start with slavery. Like, it actually, <laughs> we need to look at the very bones of this country. And I think that our just our current climate in general is having a really slow and hard time doing that. And I don't know how long it's going to take for people to really, truly understand that indigenous invisibility Mm -hmm. is still kind of creating part of the same problems that people are trying to correct. So I worry about that from a media perspective. 2020, for me, really laid bare how much abuse I endured. I have endured as a woman journalist of color in my industry, where I've just kind of taken it and taken it and we move on, right? Like it's Our endurance, I think, is incredible when we look at 20 years in this industry, right? And so I'm really happy with myself these days of just kind of being really grounded in what I know needs to happen now. And it's exciting. And there's not a lot of fear involved, to be quite honest, because I feel like we're now in this new space where there is just a lot more freedom. The internet allows for that, for people like me to have a newsletter, for instance, and to push back Mm. around these more bigger brands that might just be missing the mark, even if they are trying to make progress. And I, I think that's what's so... Inspiring to to have someone like Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland so visible in in our spaces every day is because she is the most credible reminder that we're still here as Native people and that every part of our society, every law, you know, every kind of policies that are created, I mean, they have an Indigenous story behind them. They have some kind of foundation and I, and I just don't see that being discussed. So I look forward to the Indigenous reality being inserted into spaces a lot more.
0: And Mitra, you actually work in helping to strategize around leadership and, you know, executive placement, seeing it from a pretty privileged, well-earned privilege, but privileged part of the pipeline (laughs) where you get to really landscape
6: from the top. What do you see happening? I see a lot of desire to get this right. I also see a lot of desire to just hurry up and get a woman of color in there so we could say that we did it. <laughs> and so I want to be honest about that because a lot of conversations I have in, so we run a, uh, as you as you mentioned, we run a wildly successful recruiting arm of URL Media and we'll start out with conversations with the hiring manager. What do you want, right? Mm-hmm. And what are the skills of this job? And the number of times people will just, because we center diversity we will just feel comfortable saying, we're a very white team. If you could find me a woman of color, that would solve a lot of problems. <laughs> and that's that what is we like to do is solve quote. other people's yeah. problems. <laughs> that's right. And so I'm not even like going hyperbolic with that quote. That is a real thing people have said, not oh, yeah. just once, but a few times, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you could picture it. So what that has forced us to do as a business for this, but also as a thought leader to that manager, which comes, as you rightfully say, from a perch of privilege, is to say, wait, wait, why are you thinking that a woman of color is going to solve a problem that is clearly not solvable with one position, right? And so then we get into the culture of the place, the hiring processes, um, and so on and so forth. And so it does give us a window to have that conversation. I think the names that you mentioned are fabulous women. I mean, one thing that's happening this year is that you could ask the question, what pipeline problem, right? Mm -hmm. For so long it was, we can't find someone or there's a pipeline problem was always the excuse. And so somehow women of color are emerging every which way to fill these jobs this year is what we've seen. However, unless we're going to solve, I would argue, a toxic work culture that allows somebody to say, unchallenged, unless they're working with us, I would love a woman of color to solve my (laughs) problem, then we're actually creating more problems for said leadership, right? So, uh, uh, you know, I I think that there is some ways to go.
0: And that's a perfect
6: place to leave it. Thanks for joining me, Mitra and Jenny. Thank you, Farai.
0: Thank you, Farai. That was S. Mitra Kalita, founder and publisher of Epicenter NYC and CEO of URL Media, and Jenny Monet, author of the fabulous weekend newsletter, Indigenously. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. For the rebroadcast segments in this episode, Juleka Lantigua-Williams was executive producer. Paulina Velasco was senior producer. Cedric Wilson was lead producer. Original music by Kojin Toshiro. Additional production by Priscilla Alabi, Michelle Baker, Mark Betancourt, Sarah McClure, and Kojin Tashiro. Additional production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the BME Community. Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.